question is that the motion be agreed to. I call the Prime Minister. We were given a referendum on whether to remain or leave the European Union. I will never send troops anywhere in a mission of that kind. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Good to be back. Uh, as always, if you're getting value out of these, please let some friends and family know about it. That would be much appreciated. I just want to congratulate everyone for, in the past two weeks, becoming a US citizen. It seems like the whole world has gone berserk into just reporting everything US related. I, uh, you know, was chatting to family about it back home in Oz and, um, you know, friends here in Canada. And, you know, it just seems like everyone knows more about the electoral college system than they do about their own democracy in their own country. It's, uh, I guess, a symptom of the US hegemony that, uh, that we're living in. I do think uh, Steve Bannon said it best a few years back when he said, politics has become uh, the boom market of all boom markets in this past decade. It's gone absolutely berserk and has spilled over into everything. And one example of that is polling. It's just everywhere. No matter where you turn, no matter which news site, everyone is reporting on polling for the US the US 2020 election. Let's take a listen. So here we are six days out. People are closely watching the polls. So we go to NBC News senior political editor Mark Murray for insight on those latest numbers. Thanks for the time as always, Mark. So the NBC national polling average right now has Vice President Joe Biden ahead. But does anyone find this absolutely crazy? Wasn't it just the 2016 election when we when we realized that the polls are BS? They don't tell the truth. Let's take a listen. What went wrong with the numbers, the predictions, that polls that suggested a late surge for Clinton? Eric Grenier is with me this morning, and I should just be very clear, Eric wasn't out in the field actually doing the numbers, but you've been our poll tracker, so you get to answer the questions that are going to be facing the industry today. How did polling get this so wrong, Eric? And it wasn't just the 2016 U.S. presidential election. A similar thing happened for Brexit. And a similar thing happened for the 2019 Australian federal election poll. Let's take a listen. After losing more than 50 consecutive opinion polls, and maybe that's the last time we should mention them, but after three years of losses, the coalition won the only one that counts. Okay, so let's dive into it. What exactly has gone wrong with polling in recent years? Well, the first one is just straight up unrepresentative sampling. That's something that all of us can intuitively understand. If you don't sample the right number of people, how are you possibly going to get the correct result? Uh, The first example of that is party bias. So this is a Forbes article titled, The Evidence is Clear, Polls are Not to be Trusted. Um, And in it, it says, on July 15th, headlines in the Wall Street Journal and NBC roared. Trump trails Biden, Warren, and Sanders, citing a recent poll. But is this really the case? Upon further investigation, the poll is comprised of 42% Democrats, 36% Republicans, 12% Independent, and 10% other or not sure. A little bit later in the article, uh, it goes on to cite a different poll and uh, And it says that that poll surveyed 46% of the people that surveyed were Democrats, 36% Republican, uh, and 44% unemployed. But 
Isn't this crazy that this was once accepted as a poll that reputable news sites, the Wall Street Journal and others reported on? It's as crazy as if, you know, you wanted to find out about meat eating habits in the US and nine out of the 10 people you surveyed were vegetarians. And then you just conclude, oh, only 10% of people uh, eat meat now. It's just crazy that that was once accepted. So it'd be interesting to see how much uh, the polls have actually changed for the current election. Other reasons for incorrect polling, uh, as the New York Times reported in in its uh, article, a 2016 review, why key state polls were wrong about Trump. It points to three factors, uh, and it says, at least three key types of errors have emerged as likely contributors to the pro-Clinton bias in pre-election surveys. Uh, Undecided voters broke for Trump in the final days of the race or in the voting booth. Turnout among Mr. Trump supporters was somewhat higher than expected, and state polls in particular understated Mr. Trump's support in the decisive Rust Belt region, in part because those surveys did not adjust for the educational composition of the electorate, a key to the 2016 race. So, you know, undecided voters, yeah, I think that's that's somewhat forgivable. That's somewhat forgivable. Um, how do you really know? Where, undeci- where undecided voters will go come election day. Uh, voter turnout, again, there were a lot of pro-Trump supporters that um, came out um, much higher than anticipated and the educational component. So, you know, those who are more likely to respond to surveys are more likely to have a college degree and, and thus more likely to vote Democrat. But if you weren't surveying enough people without a college degree and those people go out and vote for Trump, then obviously the the pre-election polls are going to be inaccurate. Um, so that's the New York Times article. And so uh, the next component, which is kind of similar to the party bias, is responder bias. Um, you know, it's believed that um, the people who are actually more likely to respond to surveys uh, are more likely to have higher civic engagement and therefore more likely to be um, to be uh, voters, and it turns out that a lot of those people happen to be Clinton voters. But then, of course, when Trump uh, voters who don't respond to surveys go out and vote higher than anticipated, that's going to skew the results even further. But another real problem in with election polls is the methodology um, and the avenue through which you actually collect that polling data. So, you know, typically. Uh, we've done this through phone polls, uh, and then in recent years, uh, we've switched a lot to online, although uh, some people believe that uh, phone polls are still much more reliable because you can, could potentially lie online. But this raises a couple of uh, problems for for phone polling, which is, one, who the hell has the time to sit down and sit through a 20-minute survey on the phone? Uh, there's a great Politico article uh, which interviews two pollsters, Ari Captain and Robert Kahali, um, and these uh, apparently these pollsters saw saw Trump saw Trump winning in 2016. And uh, in the article, it goes on to point out that you know people are busier than ever, uh, and long questionnaires reduce the ability of average people to to participate. Who has the time to answer 22 questions on a Tuesday night when you're trying to fix dinner or put your children to bed? Nobody, you end up with people on the ideological extremes, either very conservative or very liberal, or worse, people who are bored. And another component of this is it's actually much harder to conduct phone surveys now because it's difficult to find people's numbers. There's an ABC article titled Election 2019, 
how the polls got it so wrong in predicting a Labor victory. So there's a quote from former news poll boss Martin O'Shaughnessy who said, the reason that it's hard to to do good telephone polling is because the old white pages, the phone book doesn't exist anymore, he said. One potential solution to this is for people to, to analyze social media trends. And this is something that um, a Australian researcher from Griffith University, Professor Bella Stantic, has done. Uh, and apparently he predicted Donald Trump's election uh, to the US presidency in 2016 and also Brexit. Uh, and he just says, I'm able to assess the opinions of people through their social media. Other polling has a much smaller sample. So that's one way that they could improve it. But some other ways that people uh, have said that the polls are better this year than they were in 2016, which only time will tell, of course, um, is by people d- uh, increasing the the number of surveys and therefore the, the sample sizes that they're um, actually using for their polls. So that there's a Washington Post article, which is how polling works and how it's changed since 2016. And in that article, it says, you know, pollsters have made two significant changes this year. Uh, you know, the first one is conducting more polls, as I just mentioned. So apparently, Real Clear Politics um, tracked 105 polls in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona from the start of September to the end of October. Um, but they only did 54 polls, so they've almost doubled it um, compared to the same period in the same areas in the 2016 election. Uh, and the second, the second way they say they've improved polls is uh, more, more polls also appear to be weighting samples by educational attainment, the article says. So, you know, fixing that educational component that we touched on. But, you know, there's, some, there's a little hunch inside, you know, that says even fixing these, you know, representative, uh, you know, these sampling errors still won't make polls perfect it's not going to make them a hundred percent predictive we can't still really trust polls uh and there are you know a few more explanations for why that is the first is a this hugely important concept i think uh for the economics profession and also for the polling profession which is preference falsification now this was coined by the economist Timur Kuran. And it, uh, what it is, in his own words, from an episode from Eric Weinstein's The Portal. Let's take a listen. So, preference falsification is the act of misrepresenting our wants under perceived social pressures. And it aims deliberately at disguising one's motivations and one's dispositions. Uh, it is very common, and sometimes it occurs in very innocent situations. Uh, if I go into somebody's home and they ask me, what do you think of the decor I've selected? I might actually, even though I don't like the decor, it doesn't suit my taste, I might say, to say oh, it's, it's wonderful, uh, and compliment my host's uh, uh, taste. I falsified my preference, but not much harm has come out of it. Uh, I've avoided hurting my, my host's feelings. But preference falsification happens 
in a very, very wide array of settings. And some of these settings, it leads to terrible consequences. In the political arena, people are, and people, whether they're on the left or whether they identify with the, uh, with the right or the some, somewhere in between, people routinely falsify their political preferences for fear that they will be skewered if they express exactly what's on their mind, if they say exactly what they want, if they express the ideas, <clears throat> excuse me, that lie under those, those prefer uh, preferences. Intuitively, this makes sense, right? I think we've all done this several times in our life. You know, um, an example of mine is, you know, when you tell someone that you're extremely excited to go to their party when in fact you're not, and the only reason you do it is to risk not offending them. I think we all have examples where we, where we say one thing or what we really want when in, in fact that's a lie. Um, and, you know, this this concept, preference falsification, you know, in part explains the silent majority where people are giving misleading responses to pollsters out of fear of social ostracization. And there is an argument that, that this has only been made worse by cancel culture um, where, you know, p there's a negative association coming out uh, publicly and supporting someone like Trump as opposed to Clinton or Biden this year. And, uh, you know, there are anecdotes that people have blatantly just been fired for coming out in support of Trump. Uh, there's a Hill article titled State of the Race, Cancel Culture and Polling Don't Mix. And uh, the the author gives a few examples. So Justin uh, Kuchera, who was a teacher and baseball coach at a Michigan high school who tweeted the fact that at real Donald Trump is our president, then district administrators offered him a choice, leave on your own terms or ours. Uh, there's another example of uh, a dental assistant named Robin Pollack, who's a single mother in Wisconsin. She posted her support for the president one day and then Soon after that, she was fired. Another example of a, a nurse named Lizzie Matthews. Uh, she honestly answered one of her patients' questions about who she voted for in the 2016. And then next minute, before she knew it, she was fired. So, you know, there is, there is some anecdotal evidence that people are going to be reluctant to publicize their support for a controversial uh, political figure like President Trump. And I guess the way you'd prove it, right, is you'd compare levels of self-censorship over time versus levels of polling margin errors over time and see if there's a correlation. I haven't seen a perfect study that's done that. But, you know, if we look at um, this article here, the polls are all right from 538, which is the, you know, prediction polling website. And, you know, the average, the average margin error in polls for the 2016 general election, when I guess self-censorship was potentially higher than four years ago, was 4.8, whereas in 2012, the, mar the average margin error was only 3.6. So that would seem to validate that assumption. But again, don't, don't look at me for a perfectly scientific uh, paper here. I, you know, I don't have all the figures. Um, you know, and but this is something that intuitively I think a lot of pollsters feel is that there is this sense of preference falsification. People are going to be reluctant to uh, pronounce their support for Trump 
there is this Politico article, again, the one I was referring to, um, and those pollsters have, uh, you know, said, we live in a country where people will lie to their accountant, they'll lie to their doctor, they'll lie to their priest, uh, and we're supposed to believe they shed all of that when they get on the telephone with a stranger. One way that these guys have actually... Um, try to overcome this problem is by asking a social circle question, which is, you know, instead of asking, will you vote for Trump or Biden? They say, who do you think your friends and neighbors will vote for? And the idea behind this is that you're more likely to tell the truth when it's, um, when it's done under the guise of someone else. It's the classic, you know, I'm just asking for a friend, uh, you know, when in fact you don't want to disguise what your, uh, you know, that your question is in fact for you. When they ask the normal question, they get a 10-point lead nationally for Biden over Trump. But when they ask the social circle question, it's a lot. Uh, that lead reduces. Uh, Biden only gets a five- or six-point lead in comparison to the 10-point lead. So that's, that's one way to overcome it. But there are still some other issues why you wouldn't really trust polls. There's a conspiracy going around that Republicans are deliberately lying to pollsters. You know, there is this pro-Trump idea that all the experts are wrong, this anti-expert sentiment. And it seems that some Republicans would be playing into it by deliberately lying to pollsters, saying that they'd support Biden uh, instead of Trump. So this is something that Scott Ab- Scott Adams, uh, creator of Dilbert, has been propagating along with some other uh, users on Twitter. Let's take a listen to Scott Adams on this point. But uh, I'm going to stick with my prediction that the polls are inaccurate and people are lying to those pollsters because it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I asked on Twitter, a little Twitter poll, uh, have any of you actually lied to the pollsters about your support for Trump? Hundreds of people said yes. And they weren't saying we might lie or we we think we'll do it in the future. They said we have this year. (laughs) Again, we don't know if this is true, but it would be hilarious if it's a conspiracy that gets validated come election night. Uh, What about the fact that, you know, polls were never designed to be perfect? I think this is something that really changed my way of thinking when I read it. Um, which is that, you know, the media tends to project, at least before 2016, that polls have predictive powers, but a lot of these media outlets or pundits who are talking about it fail to tell you that even the statisticians realize that there are statistical margins of errors which needs to be taken into account. So, um, you know, Nate Silver, who is, you know, founder of 538, statistician, big dog in the polling the polling market uh, has basically called BS on the idea that polls have declined in quality over recent years. And he says that they're as accurate or as inaccurate as they've always been. Um, He says, the media narrative that polling accuracy has taken a nosedive is mostly bullshit. In other words, polls are never as good as the media assumed they were before 2016, and they aren't nearly as bad as the media seems to assume they are now. In reality, not that much has changed. You know, one way we can we can conceptualize this is, you know, if we look at the average margin of polling error over since 19, 1998 to 2018 in the US, covering all, all elections from primary general, governor, US state uh, senate, and the US house, the average polling error is 5.9. So if you, you know, round this to six, he says, you know, 
If the average error is six points, that means the true empirically derived margin of error or 95% confidence interval is closer to 14 or 15 percentage points. That's much more than you'd infer from the margins of error that pollsters traditionally list, which consider only sampling error and not other potential sources of error, which pertain only to one candidate's vote share and not the margin between candidates. This means that you shouldn't be surprised when a candidate who had been trailing in the polls but only a few points wins a race. And in some cases, even a poll showing a 10 or 12 or 14 point lead isn't enough to make a candidate's lead safe. So basically, what all this means is, given the statistical uncertainty with polls, you can never say that an eight point lead means with 100% confidence that you know, Biden will win over Atrons over Trump. There is always this statistical uncertainty due to things like sampling errors and other sources of uncertainty, which invalidate the confidence that you would otherwise see media project onto those polls. So in other words, it's not like it's not like the polls were ever meant to be predictive. It's only that just the media ran with the narrative that they were predictive because I don't know, makes for better news if you can say with certainty what the polls are going to say and you can instill a sense of certainty as to what's going to happen in your viewers or readers. You know, you know. to me, it, it reminds me of that example um, of GDP. So, you know, GDP was, you know, the economic concept that measures a country's national income. Uh, it was pioneered by the economist Simon Kuznets back in the 1930s, but he never really... Uh, thought that the GDP was a perfect measure of human well-being. He actually actively made a point of saying that it was imperfect and we shouldn't solely be relying on GDP to measure human well-being. But then obviously it took a it, it became a different creature. It, it, you know, it took a course of its own GDP and everyone started using it as this you know, this invincible, this extremely accurate measure when in fact uh, it would it was never intended to be that measure by the person who designed it. And so I think the same thing has been happening with polling where it was never meant to be a perfectly predictive tool, but the people who have gone on to use it and communicate on it in the media are acting as if it's something that it's not. So on that note, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. As always, thanks for listening. I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.